0: Welcome back to the KPL Podcast. I'm your host, Jagisha. Listeners, this week on the podcast, I have bestselling author, Andrew Ritger, and we are going to be talking about his new book, Hope. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, so to start off, tell us about Hope. What is the book about?
1: The book is about a seemingly perfect family uh, that lives just outside of Boston in the suburbs, And they pretty much seem to have everything going for them. Good jobs, good education, nice house, et cetera. And then one day, for a set of complicated reasons, the father is caught committing fraud at work. And that scandal sets off this chain reaction of scandals that sort of reveals that this family is not quite the perfect family it always was. And the book follows this family over the course of one year as they basically implode and fall apart in tragicomic ways and then try to piece themselves back together again.
0: And uh, so what inspired you to write the book?
1: Well, the book is set in my hometown of Brookline, Massachusetts. And during COVID, I found myself, uh, you know, quarantining back in my childhood home and thinking a lot about how the last time I was living there, it was the 2010s. It was a much more optimistic, uh, hopeful time And here I was in the 2020s with all kinds of political stuff happening and COVID tearing through the streets. And I really just started asking myself, how did we get from there to here? And I started writing about this family, not unlike my own, um, but sort of a funhouse mirror version of my family, uh, set in 2013. Uh, And it was really a way for me to explore what were the things I was missing then that might have led to the situation we were in while I was writing the book circa 2020. So it almost became like this act of writing historical fiction for a very, very recent period of time. Uh, And yeah, the book it's, you know, it's really about this family and these human characters, but in a bigger picture way, I really wanted to explore what was going on in America in 2011, 12, 13, that might've planted the seeds for 2020, 2021, that, uh, maybe I was too optimistic or perhaps naive to have noticed at the time.
0: So, and what do you think some of those seeds are? Because I think that's fascinating to think that all this like optimism is maybe also led to the craziness of the last few years.
1: Yeah, well, I think what happened at least in, at least in this town of mine, uh, Brookline, Massachusetts, which is a very, uh, very liberal and sort of loudly, proudly liberal suburb, um, There was so much optimism and excitement around the election of Barack Obama. And I think that optimism in some ways led to a sense of complacency Mm -hmm. um, so that once he was in office, we sort of stopped holding him to account to deliver on some of the things he promised. And as I as I researched this book, looking into, you know, the political situation of his of his uh, administration, one theme that kept cropping up was this idea of public-private partnerships. So instead of building up a really robust public sector with public schools and libraries and so on, the administration was making a lot of deals with private companies, charter schools, et cetera, to sort of outsource the work of of the state. And I think there's a lot of ways in which you can see how that sort of led us to where we are, or at least where we wound up vis-a-vis COVID. but also, again, this sense of almost, and I hold myself accountable for this as well, sort of liberal complacency.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I and I very distinctly set the book in 2013, which is, of course, in Obama's second term, um, at this particular moment when maybe some of that optimism is, is running out. And maybe we're starting to look around and say, you know, we were so excited about this guy, but what has he done? Where has this left us? And of course, we didn't know then that that Trump was coming, that COVID was coming, that Me Too was coming and all these big upheavals. But we were maybe starting to, let's say, sort of wake up from our, uh, you know, sort of happy dream of having elected this, this, you know, the first black president and starting to to wonder maybe what his legacy would be. And of course, Trump selection suddenly throws that era into very sharp contrast. So um, it was a lot of looking back with this sort of benefit of hindsight and saying, you know, what was going on there.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, I see, I see your point on us getting complacent, our liberals getting complacent. Um, so, do you think that's uh, that we're that the liberals have woken up maybe now, and we're maybe getting a little bit better about uh, some of the things that need to be changed or fixed? I think,
1: in a very sort of grassroots way, we are. I think hmm. having had Trump, liberals sort of feel really what's at stake and. And many people um, around the campaigns of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren found themselves moving from a sort of liberal by default position to a more left position, you know, left of center left. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very much of that generation where you sort of grow up under Obama in this kind of happy liberal, you know, way. And then the recession hits and then, you know, Bernie starts his first campaign and there's a sort of. I don't want to say radicalization, but a real sense of waking up uh, as to some of the failures of the party. And but I do think on the on that sort of macro scale, on the mm-hmm. on the party scale, um, I don't think the party has woken up uh, quite as much as maybe the voters have. And I do think we're headed for a kind of tricky time where, um, instead of maybe trying to win over some of the disillusioned voters, voters on both sides of the aisle, um, we're kind of really sticking to our our establishment guns. And I'm, I'm, I'm certainly nervous about that going forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So getting back to the book now, you said, uh, the characters, uh, Deb, Scott, Maya, and Gideon are a funhouse mirror of your family. So could we talk a little bit more about the individuals and how did you come about creating them?
1: Sure. Uh, there's, (laughs) there's a way in which, uh, in one sort of surface level reading, they are very much my family. Um, you could draw some very clear lines. Uh, Scott, The uh, patriarch of the family is a cardiologist, as is my father. Uh, Deb, the mother, is a sort of uh, social justice oriented um, organizer who works resettling refugees through her local synagogue, which is a description that would be not inaccurate uh, for my own mom. Uh, And then as far as the kids go, um, Maya worked in a publishing house, uh, which I also did fresh out of college, and some of her disillusionment about The business of publishing versus the idealism of, you know, a college English class is certainly uh, my own. And uh, the son, Gideon, um, he's sort of following in his dad's footsteps. And I guess suppose you could say he represents this alternate version of me in which I, you know, became a scientist or a doctor instead of a writer. Um, But in another sense, beyond those very obviously important surface details, um, these characters are very different. They do all kinds of outrageous, outlandish, inappropriate things. And I sometimes think about them as what would it be like if everyone in my family, myself included, you know, had a lot less impulse control. And so all those sort of things you maybe think and then filter, you don't want to say it out loud or you don't want to act on that thought. These characters, uh, they say it or they act on it. Uh And so there's a fun way in which writing these characters was almost like asking these what-if questions. What if someone like my father committed an ethical breach? What if someone like my mother got in this sort of romantic entanglement? What if someone like me did X, Y, and Z? And those what-ifs, uh, you know, so this family is almost like my family missing missing a superego. And it was a lot of fun to explore um, the sort of, I, I personally just like uh, when characters in fiction tend to be a little bit badly behaved, still relatable, but A little bit more unhinged maybe than than my own personal behavior because it's sort of it's a way to explore what would we do under stress under pressure so i like to put my characters under pressure and then see how they'll react
0: yeah yeah i mean the way scott reacted was was pretty funny uh and just you know some of the choices he made you're like oh scott what are you doing (laughs) yeah so yeah
1: there's that sense of the uh someone described the book to me and I'm 99% sure in a positive way as, you know, sort of like this slow moving train wreck of watching people sort of make one, you know, misguided decision after another. And that that sort of biting, cringy tension you get just, yeah, shouting at the characters like, don't do that, don't do that. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I certainly hope that the book is grounded in enough, you know, sense of realism that there's almost a there but for the grace of God kind of quality to, Mm-hmm. these mistakes the characters make it could be a mistake I made if I was under a different kind of pressure and so that's the kind of line I like to walk
0: yeah yeah and that uh, that description is accurate because I kind of got the kind of the same sense of like I'm watching an accident and then I'm like the rubbernecker who's like right, right. it, trying, to it, trying to find out what's going on so actually the book one of the the opening of the book was really fun because it's it opens with a dinner party and Deb has this game that she's playing called the birth lottery she's making her guest play could you just talk a little bit more about that i thought that was a lot of fun and just interesting sort of idea of the birth lottery
1: yeah so she hosts this dinner party in the opening scene um which is actually a real thing that um the charitable organization oxfam uh puts on called the they're called hunger banquets and they're basically dinner parties in which you draw, a, you know, you draw a card out of a hat and on that card is given a name, nationality, uh, a couple of biographical details for this character that you'll be playing at the dinner party, as well as very importantly, a, a ranking that says either high income, medium income or low income. So for instance, if you drew a card that said, uh, you know, John Smith, you know, computer programmer, American high income. But you could also draw a card that said, as one character does, Esther, a uh, rice farmer, Haiti, mother of six, low income, and so the group gets divided up into these di- differently uh, these these characters of different income levels based on their country's GDP and get served food accordingly. So the high income table might get a really nice meal, the middle income table might get you know some plain rice or pasta, and the low income. Uh, Table is really just sort of eating the scraps of the rest of the group. And it's meant to illustrate inequality. But of course, there's this great irony in hosting a dinner party like this in an affluent suburb such as Brookline, Massachusetts, where, of course, after the event, if you're a low income guest, you can go just go grab a slice of pizza around the corner. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember very distinctly my school put on a hunger banquet when I was young. And it struck me at the time as being exactly. a a perfect summation of my hometown and the values I was raised on, which is to say a very well-meaning social justice oriented activity that in practice feels a little bit embarrassing and a little bit uh, naive to think that we're going to teach all these suburban kids about inequality by having them play act at being rice farmers from Haiti for a night. And so I've always wanted to write a scene like that, and once I realized I was setting uh, this novel in Brookline, Massachusetts, I thought, what better way to capture the ethos of this place, which is, again, so well-meaning, very sort of open-minded, but maybe blinded by its own privilege. And and what could be more absurd than a a group of doctors, lawyers, uh, you know, gathering around to to pretend to be be poor for an evening, and how might that uh, play out in a sort of comic uh, set piece?
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think it was well done. I mean, I loved uh, one of the guests who Carla that you you mentioned earlier and she's just she's begging the other people for more food because <laughs> she's like, "Okay, right. I got your point. Now just feed me the the good food." Right. Exactly. <laughs> Hope and your your previous book Altruist, um you drew you you write about family and family relationships. So what kind of draws you to that particular topic?
1: Yeah, one thing I love about writing families is there's an almost, there's a sort of inescapable sense that even if you become fully estranged from your family, they're still your family. Oh, you could not have spoken to a sibling for a decade, but if your parent dies, you know, you're going to be on the phone with them and you're going to probably be making some kind of arrangements. And there's a natural stakes and attention to that. You know, if you're writing about a romantic relationship or, or a friendship, you can always, a character can always walk away. And there's something about family that feels so tightly bound that I, I like to explore how do we get, a, how do we try to get away from these people? And then how do they sort of pull us back in? What do we want out of our families? How do we become independent people outside of these very tight units? I'm from a very tight knit family and we all love each other very much. And it's, it's, I wouldn't change it for the world, but then you get a little older and you start feeling like, Well, I want to be my own person, but I don't want to give up my family. But they all see me this way, and I sort of want to be seen this way. Um, So that tension feels very ever present. And so, yeah, I'm I'm drawn to this sort of tightness of it, and I'm and I also like writing from multiple points of view. Both books are written in third person, but with multiple you know points of view from different characters. And I've always felt that the experience of being in a tight knit family is everyone has their own version of the truth, and You know, you might remember a story differently from someone or have had a completely different takeaway of that story from someone. And there's that experience of sitting around the dinner table arguing over what really happened or what the significance of that happening was. Mm -hmm. Um, So when it comes time to write multiple points of view, it's almost this way of uh, having one novel that can contain, in this case, four different narratives, four different truths. And it's sort of up to the reader to decide. Well, who do I feel interpreted this correctly or more accurately, or who do I side with in this story? Um, But there's no one way that's definitive. And that to me feels very much like what it's like to be in a family and really what it's like to be alive, you know, never quite knowing what the definitive version is.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've gotten into arguments with my mom and I'm like, mom, I think you're remembering that wrong. (laughs) So things that, you know, happened in my childhood. So, yeah, I think you really accurately capture that. So uh, so one of the values that the Greenspans have is is their idea, the idea of meritocracy. So could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, there's a real sense um, among this family and in the town I grew up in that in many ways, America is a meritocracy. So if you work hard, uh, you'll get ahead. If you are smart and talented, you'll get ahead. If you go to college, you'll get ahead. And I think, you know, writing this during COVID, those sort of comforting myths that that many people, especially in the middle and upper middle class, tell themselves about their own success uh, suddenly got thrown out the window. And it was like, going to college absolutely doesn't guarantee you a stable middle-class job. And, you know, uh, working really hard doesn't, you don't necessarily get promoted. Maybe, you know, you get fired because AI took over your job or, or, you know, there's so many ways in which we like to believe that our own success is our own doing and that we, and that it's not a combination of yes, hard work and talent, but also luck and circumstance, you know, to go back to that lottery of birth theme, Mm -hmm. there's so much I worked for some years as a as a you know editing college essays and, and med school essays. And doing that, you really get a clear picture of the ways in which we ask our, you know, fellow citizens to perform a certain version of themselves to, to get ahead in these institutions that like to be seen as meritocratic based on say test scores. And then you realize, well, if you get a t- if you get an SAT tutor, your test scores just rock it up. And so what does that mean about how meritocratic the system is if you can afford a tutor that you know boosts your score so i but the other the, sort of the flip side of the meritocracy is not just that if you uh you know you're expected to succeed um and if you don't it's your fault uh but that you know there's it, it engenders a sense of blame so you feel like if you have succeeded it's no one's fault but it's it's all on your shoulders and you deserve everything that's coming to you and if you don't succeed it must be your fault because who else's fault could it be? It's a meritocracy, mm-hmm. um, and I think just in recent years, since the pandemic, since a lot of you know racial justice protests, there have been so many cracks exposed in these in these stories and in these myths. And I wanted to write about a family who has basically benefited from those stories and myths their entire lives until suddenly they don't. And how do you react when your value system is shaken, like once, you know, if if this character isn't succeeding, well then whose fault is it? They is it theirs, is it society's? And and how do we basically create a new value system out of the rubble of some of the chaos of the last couple of years? So I'm really interested in the way that um the Obama era, especially with Obama as this representative figure of a sort of meritocracy, you know, he sort of came up through the ranks and went to these Ivy League schools and hustled his way and became this against all odds, this massively powerful figure, it almost like set this false idea that anyone could do what he did, when in fact, uh, I don't think that's the case. And the barriers to entry and success in all fields are really, really high. So it's all really just a way of exploring, uh, you know, absent meritocracy, how do we think about success in our society? And Whose fault, quote unquote, is it if we can't get ahead? And I, I would guess encourage my readers and myself to look more at those systemic structural barriers as opposed to looking at the individual and saying, "Hey, if you couldn't get ahead, the rule the rules are fair, so you must have uh, done something wrong somewhere."
0: Oh yes, the rules are fair. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, you know it's interesting because you know I'm an immigrant. I I was born in India and then my family was lucky enough to move here but if I my life would have been completely different if I had grown up in India and so the privileges and some of the things that I you know the education that I got would not have been possible so yeah birth lottery and, and think, circumstances
1: yeah absolutely and I think you could say um even on the even on the liberal side and and like a, there's a lot of uh, sort of immigrant narrative that liberals embrace but skews in it's conservative in a sort of way like all right you got here and just put your head down and work hard. And like within a generation or two, you'll have risen to this place uh, when in fact, that's often not the case. And even like you're saying, who gets to come here and who doesn't is already this big question of chance and privilege. So um, I think we in some ways really need to take the pressure off ourselves as individuals and start looking at these bigger superstructures and say, you know, who's allowed to succeed and why and what makes success possible and when we do achieve success, to give credit where it's due. Just, you know, I remember the what I remember Obama got in hot water once because he said, "Do you remember the speech he said?" Uh, the big tagline was, "You didn't build that," and it was when he was talking to you know maybe it was small business owners or something, and he said, "Well, you know, you didn't build that. Uh, you needed uh, government-funded roads to for people to drive to your business, or you needed a grant from the government to to help with this or that." And the right absolutely ate him up for that because they said, Of course, you built that. You're, you know, you Americans, you built your businesses with the sweat of your brow. And that's all true to some extent, but it is true that we live in this very interdependent system and mm-hmm. we do need each other. And it's kind of a beautiful thing to need each other. So I think, uh, to this idea of taking credit for our own success without acknowledging these other f- institutions or people that help, I'm very happy to say, We're all kind of in this together and we do need each other. It's a sort of mutual dependence, which I view in a positive light as opposed to a negative light. Like that makes you weak. I actually think it makes us strong to sort of acknowledge our interdependency on each other.
0: Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Well, so let's talk about your writing process. How did you go about writing the book? Did uh, the voice of the characters come first or the idea?
1: Yeah, it was an interesting story. I was um, in graduate school, uh, at the University of Iowa for two years writing a very different version of this novel, you could say. Um, it was also set in Brookline, Massachusetts. It involved a family called the Greenspans, but it was written in the first person and it was had a completely different plot. And I just started realizing after two years, like this book isn't really working. And you reach a, a sort of crisis point where you start to think, well, I could force my way to the end of this book and then, you know, who knows if it'll get published and then even if it does sort of have to dra- drag myself around promoting this thing I don't believe in, it, you know, yeah. or do I really just take this leap and say, you know what, I have to scrap this, even though it's two years of my life and, and, and sort of start over. And it was one of the hardest decisions I'd, I'd ever had to make, to be perfectly honest. And it was very sort of panic inducing to let go of that. But once I had let go, I felt like this big weight was lifted. And I started digging around in the ashes of that project and thought where, what in this project was working? And it turned out to be this family called the Greenspans that were sort of secondary characters in that book. And the setting, I liked that. And I was like, well, maybe I can redeem it or rescue it somehow. So I started writing in the third person, but about this similar characters. And it grew very organically from there. I knew I wanted a a medical scandal up front. I knew I wanted all the characters to take turns narrating their sections. Um, But it really grew out of, in some ways, admitting to a failure and then regrouping and trying to establish a new set of values and goals, which, you know, incidentally is sort of what the characters go through in the book. They have these hopes and dreams. They don't pan out exactly as planned and they're forced to reconsider. So I think, in some ways, my pro- experience of giving up a book and then starting over from scratch found its way into the character's uh, own ambitions and lives as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what's next? Are you st- have you already started working on another book?
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm a good ways into another book, which I'm very excited about in the sense that it's in line with these previous two books, but a, a notable departure in other ways. So. As you mentioned, both, uh, both books, Hope and the Altruists, are family novels um, about suburban, secular, upper middle class Jewish families. Um, they go through different trials and tribulations, but certain themes are constant, like family, money, privilege, guilt, you know, mutual independence versus interdependence. This new project is gonna be about all of those themes and all of those concerns that are clearly sort of pet obsessions of mine only on a much grander scale. So it's sort of technically speaking a historical novel that starts in the early part of the 20th century and gets us to almost present day. And it's you know three generations or four generations of a family rather than one. Uh, and I, I'll hesitate to say any more as it's very much in progress, but it was a way to say, okay, I've explored family, money, privilege, and so on in this more narrow capacity. Now let me see what happens to those themes if I, you know, break out a big canvas and can sort of stretch it out over a hundred years. Uh, so that's been a really fun process. A lot of research Um lot of, uh, you know, stacks of books from the library, just trying to find interesting historical anecdotes. Um, it's been a new experience and a challenging one, but uh, a lot of fun to do. And I've depended a lot on libraries to to do it. I've sort of come around to this. You know, I obviously love libraries and, and spend a lot of time in libraries. But once you find yourself writing a historical novel, uh, you realize without libraries, you'd be I mean, I'd be tens of thousands of dollars in debt by now, you know, just accumulating these obscure out-of-print books. So it's been a lot of fun to camp out at, you know, the Brooklyn Public Library or the the Manhattan, the library in Manhattan, the Society Library. I went the book set in Kansas City. I spent some time in the research wing of the Kansas City Public Library, and just uh, you know, it's it's a different experience for a fiction writer, but it's it's uh, been a lot of fun.
0: Oh, yeah, that's great to hear. You know, I, it's always lo- good to hear from authors who are like, oh, yeah, I spent a lot of time in libraries. So always, yeah, absolutely. So last question that we always ask our authors is what are you reading or what do you recommend we read?
1: Mm. Um, I'm reading a lot of great stuff right now. Let me think. Uh, well, I recently went on a big um Patricia Highsmith binge. I was not a uh, a genre or crime novelist reader. I, I had a little bit of a sort of you know, literary snobbery thing going and probably still do. But once I discovered Patricia Highsmith, who's most famous for Strangers on a Train and the talented Mr. Ripley, um, I just started getting deep into her back catalog. And what I love about her is she writes crime stories, but they're not from the perspective of the detective who's tracking down you know, the, the criminal, they're really written from the perspective of the criminal who's who's typically a normal guy who finds himself in criminal circumstances and then sweats it out as the walls start to close in. And for whatever reason, I like that sense of tension. So if you're a reader out there who likes a tense sort of page turning, but also literary read uh, and you're sort of more more interested in the fate of the of the murderer than the detective. Uh, I can't recommend diving into virtually any Patricia Highsmith novel enough. And Mm -hmm. in fact, if you read some of her stuff and then read Hope, uh, you'll find there's a scene in Hope where once the father gets caught for his fraud at work, he gets, uh, there's a sort of deposition scene. Mm -hmm. And that was modeled entirely off of my reading of Patricia Highsmith. Had I not gone on this, you know, crime novel kick with her, I would never have... Uh, written this 10-page interrogation scene. But because I was so deep into her, I thought, let me see, what what would a Brookline, Massachusetts, uh, upper-middle-class Jewish family interrogation scene look like? Uh, and that was sort of the net result. So it's fun that way to sort of see the ways that a new influence can can work its way into a book that's in progress at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I was actually, I had the same thought as you're talking about uh, Patricia Highsmith. I'm like, oh, wait, Scott's kind of gone through that. Uh, right, yeah. right. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time. And listeners, Hope is available right here at the Kirkwood Library and wherever amazing books are sold. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That's our show this week. Thank you for listening. Join us next week when we talk to bestselling author Sherry LaPena about her new book, Everyone Here is Lying. Until next week.